0: Well folks, let's go ahead and begin. Other people will be trickling. I've got a bunch of preliminary stuff before we get into the first question that Satan asks. So I was talking to my wife during the week and she said, you need to say that to the Sunday school class on Sunday. And it's basically this. I said, you know, life really is pretty simple. It boils down to one basic question. Is everything we see in the universe and on this planet and in our lives the product of chance, time, and electromagnetic particles just having to bump into each other and proteins folding a certain way to produce the billions of species of animals and plants? Or is there a creator? That really is the question of life. And talking about Satan, Satan would love for you and me to believe the former. In fact, I think Satan pulled a real coup back in uh, the 18th century with the so-called enlightenment. And uh, that whole idea of humanism, uh, putting human beings at the center and really pushing God to the sidelines and that captured academia at that time and has continued to capture academia right down to this very day. If you want to talk about the demise of the church in America and pretty much Europe in America, most seminaries were connected to university campuses uh, in Europe. And here in the United States, Princeton University grew out of Princeton Seminary. Um, And you found the the professors at the seminary wanted the approval of the academics. And so they started uh, bending toward more humanism. And the point I'm making is that that's what Satan loves. He, he, he really wants you and me to put ourselves at the center of life. But think about it. If this is all an accident, that means you're an accident. That means there's absolutely no meaning or purpose in life at all. There, no such thing as good and bad. And you say, wait a minute. No, I feel certain things are good. Well, who gives you the right if there's no absolute authority who gives you the right to decide what's good and bad during the enlightenment there was a a guy in europe named machiavelli count machiavelli and he was an atheist and you know we talk about a machiavellian culture whatever machiavelli said um since there is no god the people in power determine what's good and bad and uh in england that got boiled down to what in Latin was called rex lex. Rex meaning king, lex meaning law. And the British system was set up that the king made the law. Now, if you had a good king, that was great. If you had a bad king, that wasn't too good. Along came Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian, and he said, that's a, that's a crock. And he wrote a book called Lex Rex. Switch it around, he said, The law should be over the king. The king should should be subjected to the law. And the law he was referring to was a God-centered law, the Ten Commandments. That's the absolute. And that, my friends, is what our Constitution and our whole judicial system was founded upon here in the United States. Our founding fathers read Lex Rex. And they said, this has got to be the basis that the, the government has to be subject to God. He's the absolute. That's why you want to, that's why you see people want to get rid of the Constitution and who's ever in power. You see all this, you know, let's stack the Supreme Court, let's make more states that will vote. It's all a, 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 an attempt to gain power and then we make the rule. We tell you what's right and what's wrong. And you know the the sad thing is um, if you go with that first thing then your life really has no meaning or purpose. Uh, Where does our self-esteem, our self-worth come from? It really only comes from one thing, and that's if you understand that you and I, and every other human being, are creatures made in the image of God. And that's the only thing you really need to know. It's not based on uh, who you are in terms of your employment, or what race you are, or social status, or... uh, or state of being, whether you're brain dead or not, or handicapped or not. Um, If you're made in the image of God, which I believe is true, that means we need to look at every other human being as made in the image of God and give them the love, respect, and value that comes from that alone. That's why there's no place in the Christian faith for racism. Uh, That's why I'm staunchly pro-life, because I don't think we have the right to kill innocent life. And uh, so just think about that, Um, and Satan would love for you to believe you're an accident, and then uh, he's got you. Also, um, we're going to start today um, looking at the questions Satan asks in Scripture, but you remember Chris, when he was teaching on wisdom literature, he he asked us a question every week, where did you see God at work this week? And I'm gonna ask you a question every week and it's this where did you see Satan at work <laughs> this week anybody want to volunteer where they saw Satan at work huh yeah yeah the attempted assassination of a Supreme Court justice where who do you think was behind that <laughs> But you know, the most shocking thing I saw this week and heard came from the mouth of a Christian preacher named John Shelley, pastor of Steadfast Baptist Church in Watoga, Texas, up North Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth area. I listened to this snippet of his sermon, last week's sermon. It's Pride Month. And so this preacher said I'm not going to get it verbatim, but basically I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically, that the government of the United States should round up every homosexual in the country, try them for being homosexual, and execute them with a bullet through the back of their head." I was sad. I mean, I heard this. I went on their website, Steadfast Baptist Church. It's small. I thought, who the heck would go to a church? Um, Surprisingly, it was multiracial, Hispanics and blacks. In fact, the pastor before this guy was an Hispanic guy. And he preached the same kind of stuff. And he got run out by the local, they had a lot of protesters at the church. He left, and then this guy came. And they have protesters outside their church now. I I thought that church in Wichita, that Baptist church, was the worst. These guys are on... That's Satan, folks. And I combed their website and I found this. They're a King James-only Bible-believing church. They believe the King James Version is the only inerrant version. And it's word-perfect. If you you know anything about the Bible, the King James Version, the Hebrew and Greek, especially the Hebrew, was based on... uh, Hebrew documents that were nowhere near as old as we now have. 17th century is when the King James Version was. And since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have much more accurate uh, Old Testament documents that go back a thousand years more than we had when the King James Version. So our Bibles today, non-King James, are much more accurate and true to the word of God, and I would say infallible and errant. Uh, unfortunately, all of our interpretations are fallible, but God's word is not. So, but then here's what else I found. Uh, I clicked on their what do we believe? Well, they had their doctrines they believed, then they had false doctrines. And one of the key ones were the five points of Calvinism. That's a perverse system of theology. I thought, boy, these guys are worse than I thought. So uh, those are two places I saw Satan at work this week. Outside Brett Kavanaugh's house and with this guy up in, and uh, you know, again, what I said about human beings. I don't care what sexuality you are or whatever, it's still a person made in the image of God. Their lifestyle I'm not gonna approve of. But to have them executed? Come on. Um, that's, that's the father of lies at, at work. Well, today we're going to look at the first question that Satan asked, the first recorded question. Remember last week I told you Job, we know, is the oldest book in the Bible. So I decided to start with um, the first question that Satan asks in Job. Next week we'll look at the first question that's probably the oldest question where, um, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. But today we're going to take a look at Job. 1 verse 9, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we uh, love you, we uh, praise you, we come before you, Uh, we want to know everything we can about you, and we want to know everything we can about Satan so we can avoid him and know his wiles and how to uh, uh, faithfully follow you and not be uh, snookered into following him. Uh, Lord, I, I pray for our Supreme Court, all the justices, I, I, I pray that you put your protection around Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Barrett, and particularly their children uh, as threats are being made against them. I pray that you give them the courage to and the, all the Supreme Court justices the courage to vote what is good law as framed by the Constitution not uh, accommodating themselves to uh, the culture um, and Lord, we, I pray for this man, John Shelley in Fort Worth area, Lord. He's made in your image. You love him. Uh, please change his heart, Lord, and help him to preach the gospel of grace, not the gospel of hate. Forgive me for times I may have crossed over the line toward that area myself. None of us are innocent. And Lord, we pray for rain. We really need it here in South Texas. And uh, Lord, I, I pray for our senior pastor, Bob Fuller, as he preaches this morning, and Mitchell, pour through them the gift of preaching. Also be with Bob and Morgan as they fly to Mexico City this week, uh, rekindling uh, an official relationship between this congregation and the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico uh, in areas of church planning and education. And we thank you for, for Uh, reinvigorating that partnership that's gone back 150 years Lord and may it bear great great fruit beyond our wildest imaginations. Lord uh, help me to teach accurately this morning according to your word as I say when I preach as my words are true to your word may they be taken to heart but as they stray from your word may they be quickly forgotten and I pray all of this in Jesus name Amen If you have your Bibles with you and that's kind of a hint that you ought to bring them with you turn to Job chapter 1 and you see the first recorded question if Job is indeed the oldest book in the Bible then this is the first question that Satan asks and he doesn't ask it of Job but he asks it of God I'm going to read verse 9 here's what uh, here's the first question Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face." So here's the first question we find Satan asking in Scripture. scripture. Um, And he's questioning the ways of God, particularly the way God relates to human beings. Now, who is Satan to question God, the almighty God of the universe? Um, Where does he get off thinking that he has a right to do that? Um, we're going to see Job also question Job, Job, um, God, if you read through the book of Job. Job is suffering, he feels like it's unjust, and he's saying, God, what's going on? And um, so we see great, a great liberating thing in the book of Job that God does allow every creature to ask him questions. and uh, and he doesn't just snuff them out. He doesn't snuff out Satan. He doesn't snuff out Job. And so we do have permission uh, to ask God questions. And and you and I are asking questions of God all the time. Um, But there's a caveat in the book of Job. If you look at chapter 38, uh, that's the longest recorded speech by God in scripture. And he basically spends that chapter taking job out behind the woodshed and giving him a good dressing down and saying, okay Job, you've asked me all these questions, but let me ask you one. Where were you when I was putting together the universe? And, blah, 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 and he goes through a long list, all the animals and plants and and uh he kind of just you know bowls Job over and, and Job finally gets it and repents and says okay I'm just going to trust that you know what you're doing and that's pretty much I think God giving us at the beginning of scripture if Job is the oldest book giving us a a paradigm for faithfulness and how we relate to God we don't completely understand everything Um, we can question him but ultimately um, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis I quote it to myself all the time He said, we're going to spend the first 10,000 years in eternity going, oh, now I understand. So Job has to just go, okay, God, uh, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm going to trust you. And that's basically, I think, what life boils down to. We either trust God uh, or we don't. And, you know, in the Psalms, you and I are also given permission to question God. um, And... We can let God have it, but always, uh, let me read chapter 42, verses one through six in Job, because I said he he repents, and I think he gives us a good model for that, uh, what it means to truly repent and trust God. This is after God has laid out and questioned Job about where were you when I did whatever, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. I'm going to teach a class on the Apostles' Creed beginning in the fall, not uh, August, I guess. And um, one of the things I'm going to say is it's the first clause of the Apostles' Creed that should be the most controversial and the biggest, hardest pill to swallow. You know, everybody wants to argue about is the virgin birth real or the bodily resurrection of Christ? The old maroon hymn book in the Apostles' Creed you used to have an asterisk after he descended into hell. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it said, Some churches omit this. I used to joke and say, We ought to put an asterisk after every clause of the Apostles' Creed. You know, that would just solve all the controversies. I believe God, Father Almighty, some churches omit this. Uh, but really, that first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, that should be the most controversial phrase. If you can swallow that, then what's a virgin birth or a bodily resurrection or walking on water or turning water into wine? Um, so here's Job. He's saying, I know that you can all do all things. He's saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted here's the sovereignty of God in other words God is working every event good bad and the ugly into his perfect plan of salvation for us and for the redemption of his entire creation who is this that hides counsel without knowledge therefore I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know hear and I will speak I will question you and you make it known to me i had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes so here right at the beginning of scripture we have this paradigm that we're not going to completely understand God ever and he's not going to answer all of our questions but are we willing to trust that he is who he says he is, that he really is a God of love and um, wait till we get on the other side of eternity to understand everything. But let's, let's drill down on this first question Satan asks in Job 1 verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? I think here's God at the beginning of Scripture, really the first book of the Bible, and so God's saying, here's the first, here are the first things you need to know about faith and how you relate to me. Uh, And he's laying out, I believe, right here, the gospel of grace. And people say, the Old Testament's a God of judgment, New Testament's God of grace, no, no, no. Grace permeates the Bible from Old through New Testament, and I would argue the Bible begins with grace. In other words, Satan's asking God, look, you've given Job a prosperous life, and so he he likes you and he follows you. Take that away, and he's going to curse you to your face. So God does this little experiment with Job and Satan, and I'm going to talk about why I don't like that a little bit later, but I'm glad he did, and right away from the very get-go we learn that the Christian faith is not a quid pro quo faith. Quid pro quo. Remember when Trump was being accused, Ukrainian phone call, quid pro quo. I sat there and go, that's what every president does. You know, we'll do this, and if you do this, we'll give you this. That's what every businessman does. That's when when a pest control person comes to your house, you say, if you spray my house, I'm going to give you some money. It's a quid pro quo. But here, at the beginning of Scripture, it's kind of a reverse thing. Satan is saying, you know, um, if you give Job something, then he's going to follow you. That raises a big question for you and me. Are we followers of Christ and believers in God because we're gonna get something? I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, so just hang on to that. But right here at the beginning, God is really laying out for you and me the reality that, and I like to say this, I say it wherever I go, there are only two, world religions. Everybody thinks there's hundreds of them. There's only two. There's the gospel of grace, and there's everything else. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism. Every other faith system is quid pro quo. Transactional faith. God, I burn this incense for you, and you start liking me better. Or I do this, and and ultimately, it's an attempt by you and me to earn or merit or achieve good standing with God, ultimately, our, our salvation. That is Satan's biggest lie that he's perpetrated on the church since Pentecost. Sadly, when I asked Christians, committed Christians, Particularly those, if I know them well, and they're nearing the end of life. And I, my focus of my ministry for 40 years was I wanted people to have the assurance of their salvation. And some of you heard me say this story before, but there was an elder in Dallas, and he was in his 80s. He was the most gracious, mature Christian I've ever met. And he came to my office and he said, I've been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. They have given me about three months to live and i said i don't need to ask him well i'm his pastor i'm gonna bob are are you assured of your salvation i want you to be assured i'll never forget what he said to me he looked at me and said well ron you know i hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and i knew him real well so i said bob when did you become a muslim and he looked at me what i said that's muslim theology that is not christian faith that's quid pro quo. If I get enough good deeds, then God will let me in. You know, Mohammed said he didn't know if he was saved. Because he said he wasn't sure that, he, that his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds. If Mohammed can't be sure, what, what do you, why do you think you can be sure? How many, how many sins have you committed in your life? And how much do you and I need to do to get God to go, okay, what if you miss one? You know, I ask, I try to keep short accounts with God and ask for forgiveness of my sins, but every day I pray, Lord, also please forgive me for the innumerable myriad of sins I've committed throughout my whole life that I will never confess because out of ignorance, indifference, or forgetfulness. And I'm just trusting that your bloodshed on the cross covers those as well. But here's this quid pro quo thing. Um, and God is shooting it down right from the beginning. Um, now, Job's friends come along, and they're quid pro, quid pro guys. Uh, you know, Job's friends could have been great heroes, biblical heroes. They show up, they're there for a week, they don't say anything. People oftentimes come to me and go, so-and-so's in the hospital. You know, what do I say? I say, don't say anything, just go. They don't really want you to analyze things and try to figure it out and give them answers. Just go, your presence. I never really understood that until I was on the other side of the receiving end. And just having someone come and not try to figure me out God, God uses that. So if Job's friends just kept their mouths shut, they would have gone down as heroes. But they're sitting there and they just, <coughs> Job, we got to explain this. You couldn't be really a righteous guy. You must have done something to really tick God off because basically they're saying faith is a quid pro quo thing. It's a transactional thing. If you're a bad boy, God's going to get you. If you're a good boy, he won't. He's getting you, so you're obviously a bad boy. What did you do? What did you do? And they keep pressing him on this. I had a, a, a member of my church in Baltimore, Mary Meter, a saint. She was dying of cancer. And we, we had a section of our church that was uh, neo-Pentecostal, bordering on charismaniac. Uh, and uh, these people, some of them went to visit her. Now, she's probably one of the most, after my wife, one of the most sinless persons on the planet, Mary Meter. She was just a gracious one. They badgered. They probably made her die earlier than she was going to because it must be some unconfessed sin in your life. And they had her in agony. Um, man, that is not the faith of the Bible, but that's the faith Satan wants you and me to have. So right at the beginning, the oldest book in the Bible, we're up against um, the most wonderful thing in the universe, and that's the gospel of grace. Sola gratia. The fact that you and I are saved by grace alone. Christianity is the only non-transactional, non-quid pro quo faith system in the world. In the book of Job, with Satan's question, God immediately reveals himself to be stuff we like and don't like. We've got to be honest. God gives us not an exhaustive picture of himself in Scripture, but enough we need to know about, and it's not all uh, a bed of roses. And this is what I mean when I uh, say, I, I don't like this experiment that God does with Job, you know, Poor Joe. He's a nice guy. He's done everything right. And uh, I don't like what he did with Abraham and Isaac. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But two things we learn about God from the very beginning, and this is carried through the whole of Scripture. Two things about God. Number one, he's angular. Not nice and smooth. And uh, He's, he's not domesticated and declawed and defanged. But he's also gracious and loving. And you've got to hold those two. Let me give you an example. 2 Samuel 6. The Jews have recovered the Ark of the Covenant. And they're going to bring it back into Jerusalem. And David's leading the parade. Now God has said nobody touches the Ark. No one. Not even the Levitical priests. Their poles through rings on the side of the ark, the priest would, but nobody touches the actual ark. That's the rules, that's the absolute authority. And so they're coming in, they got the uh, cart, uh, the, uh, the ark on a cart, ox cart, and they're coming in. David's dancing in front and everybody's celebrating. And the ox cart hits a, a stone and starts to tip and the ark's sliding off and there's this guy named Uzzah who's walking alongside the ark he sees that the ark's going to slide off the cart and he puts his hand on to touch the ark and keep it steady and god strikes him dead do you like that passage i don't i'm like god you know, give him hemorrhoids or something but don't kill him (laughs) david is mad david bursts into anger against god for striking down Uzzah. Now, if you're a liberal Christian, you go, well, that's just some pre, uh, prehistoric, you know, primitive idea about God. We can overlook that. It, but if you take Genesis through Revelation as the infallible word of God, you got to deal with this. We get an angular picture of God. What do we do with that? Some people say, I didn't see that. Other people will throw it out. It's not really the word of God. If you ever hear a pastor say, listen for the word of God before they read Scripture, run, join another church. Uh, that's a neo-orthodox view that the word of God is in here somewhere. And maybe we'll hear it today. That sets you up as a subjective judge of what is and what isn't the word of God. So I'd say, we've got to deal with this. Well, how do we deal with it? Well, you got to hold the angularity of God together with the gracious lovingness of God at the same time. Remember in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, and the children making their journey, to, they're gonna meet Aslan, but they don't know Aslan's a lion, and they spend the night with the beaver family, and animals talk, and Narnia, and I think it's Lucy, uh, is, or no, Mrs. Beaver discloses that Aslan is a lion, and Lucy's a lion? Ooh. And then she said, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who says anything about safe? He said, he's a lion. He's the Lord of the wood, but he's good. And so you get this, and you know, we talk, the book of Revelation talks about Christ as being lamb and lion. Which one is it? Well, it's not either or, it's both and. And so with a passage like this, I say to myself, I've got to hold this together with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And both are true. Doing that prevents you and me from a thing that Satan wants us to do. uh, And it's real fun to do. And it feels good. And most of us do it. And that's create an image of God in our own image. What we want God to be like. We all basically want God to be a cross between Big Bird, Santa Claus, and everybody's grandfather. Um, You don't get that in scripture. But we do get a God who's unconditionally loving. And um, so we see that right here at the beginning uh, of Job. And this angularity where he allows Job to be kind of experimented on by Satan. I hate that. Um, and I hate the Abraham Isaac thing. I mean think about it. Here's Abraham taking his son Isaac. God says I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And they go on this like three-day journey. Isaac's probably going, eh, cool, a trip with my dad. The whole time I imagine Abraham's agonizing. Wait a minute. I thought the, the nation of Israel was supposed to come through my son. Now he's going to die. How, how's this going to work? And plus, I have to kill my own son? I mean, part of me goes, God, how can you allow somebody to go through something like that? And Abraham prophesies. I don't think he knows it, but he leaves the ser- his servants behind and he says, we'll see you again. We will see you again. And I don't know if Abraham realized it, but he, but he was prophesying that Isaac and he will return. And of course, you know the story. He's about to slay Isaac. Could you have done that? Do you, do you and I love God enough that if he told us to sacrifice our child, we'd do it? I think I would have dropped the knife and said, is there another God up there? Abraham is like this and then the angel stops him and says, don't do it. You Remember Isaac says, daddy, We've got the fire and we've got the wood. Where's the ram, the lamb? God will provide, son. And again, Abraham's prophesying. He doesn't realize it. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. And they sacrifice the ram. Do you know what that whole story is telling you and me? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The totally depraved, sinful world that Satan is the prince over so much that he gave his only begotten son you know god did not ask abraham to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself and we say oh yeah but god knew that jesus rise from it you and i don't have no inkling as to how deeply horrendous on a cosmic level the crucifixion was it wasn't just like if they took you and me out and hung us on a cross and and we died something transacted on that cross by the death of the son of God in a cosmic way that when we and it's captured in the apostles creed in that phrase and he descended into hell and people have debated over the years what does that mean did Jesus go to hell the actual hell there's some places in scripture in first Peter where it says that it was in the grave and he went and preached to the spirits in and Hades. And, but that's Hades really in hell. Whatever hell is, the horrendous of it, horrendousness of it, Jesus took all of that into himself there on the cross. I think hell occurred on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Then it said that he cried out and died. And so all the pain, torture, torturous pain and punishment of the entire world came down upon this one guy and uh, so God's heart the father is breaking and going through untold agony as he lets his son go to the cross but that is a visible illustration of the substitutionary atonement that Christ took our place on the cross But don't walk out of here thinking, well, I'm glad he did that, so I don't have to go on a cross. No, you could nail me to a cross a billion times, and it wouldn't even come close to atoning for my sin. Only Christ's atonement can do that. But he substituted himself. Uh, There's a big movement in the church today, even amongst some evangelicals, to shy away from the substitutionary atonement. You give that up, you give up the Christian faith. The ram becomes the substitute. Jesus is our substitute. So, Satan's question in Job 1.9 raises an important question that you and I got to answer. We'll bring it home to existentially for where we are today. Here's the question we need to ask of ourselves. Why do I follow Jesus? Is my faith transactional? In other words, am I following Jesus to get something? Is it a quid pro quo thing? If I do this, then God will give me this. Let me bring it home to you this way. What, what if Christ appeared to you today? And he, and he said, John, let me tell you, there is no heaven and there is no hell. When you die... You're just like this squirrel that got run over in the street. It's over. Come. Follow me. What would you do? you said, well, if there's nothing in it for me. Pfft, or you, you don't have to answer. It might cost you your marriage. Because um, Meredith might be saying, yes, I would follow. him. you're going, to, well, I'm going to follow. So we don't want to, you know. Think of that. If Jesus said, there's nothing. Come, follow me. What would you do? Which gets back to the question, why do you and I follow Christ? Let me try to simplify it. You're a private in the army, and you're walking along one day, and a major comes along and says, private, come here. Dig three holes. What does that private do? Does he go, will you explain to me exactly what I'm going to get out of this? Uh, Why are the holes supposed to be dug? What are you going to do with it? You don't question the major because of who he is, his authority, and you say, yes sir, and you start digging. Well, who who is Christ? Is he God incarnate? Is he the almighty God of the universe in human flesh? The point I'm trying to make is we follow Christ for who he is, not You show me what I get out of it, and then I'll consider it. That's transactional faith. That's quid pro quo. Now, the good news of the gospel is that there is something on the other side, and there is a heaven, but but here's where God turns the whole transactional thing on its head. He says, you don't have to do anything for me. I've already done it all for you, even before the foundation of the world, I chose you to be mine and sealed you to be mine. And I've done it all in Christ, and there's really nothing you and I need to do at all. There's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. Oh yes, we have to make a decision for Christ, but even that. The only reason we're able to, Martin Luther, actually Augustine before Luther, wrote a tract called The Bondage of the Human Will. And he said before the Holy Spirit frees your will in mind, we will never choose for Christ. The fact, I assume everybody here made a decision for Christ. And it felt like, well, I figured this out, it made sense to me and I made the choice. Augustine then Luther wrote a similar tract during the Reformation. Uh, they both said, you know, before the your faith response is just that. It's a response to God's choice of you. Not until the Holy Spirit freed, regenerated your heart, could you ever even make a decision for Christ. And so, any way you look at it, God always takes the initiative. He always does the first thing. It's not, we do something and then he responds in favor to us. Nope, nope. Um, in God, in God in Christ, is God in Christ worthy of worship? Is he worthy of following, even dying for, just for who he is, or not? That is the question of authentic faith, the faith that's being prescribed for you and me right here at the front door of Scripture in the book of Job. Um, No quid pro when it comes to grace. God does not say, you do this, and I'll give you eternal life. He says, I've chosen you from before the foundation of the world, and I really would rather die than live without you. So, um, he's the one that's done everything for you and me. All you and I bring to the relationship with Christ is our sin and hopefully our gratitude. That's all I have to say. Uh, we have some time for questions, maybe about five minutes. And then we'll, so, yes? One of the scriptures is always uh, that he that comes from God must first believe that he is. Um, and the news It kept me from charging God foolishly when I didn't understand. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, always, I think I even said this last week. I always think about that story of Elisha and his servant in the town of Dothan. They're surrounded by the Syrian army, and I mean, there's you know no way out. And Elisha's kind of calm. The servants, you know. And so Elisha prays that God would open the servant's eyes to reality with capital R. The reality was the Syrian army surrounded by the angelic army of God. And uh, reminds me of that politically incorrect joke. Should I say it again? When uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto find themselves trapped in a box canyon with about 7,000 Sioux coming down on top of them. And uh, the Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, uh, well Tonto my friend looks like we're done for and Tonto says what you mean we pale face <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know if, we, if you and I could see behind the curtain of eternity we'd probably go and relax with all the stuff we're seeing Satan's out here doing all this stuff and we get all hepped up my friend Paul we have a little prayer group that meets on Wednesdays and first we talk what's wrong with the country beforehand, and then we pray. But Paul always says, hey guys, remember, none of this makes God nervous. And I quote that to myself all week long when I get all, okay, God's sovereign, he's on the throne, and nobody can unseat him. Great question. Other questions or comments? Rebuttal. Okay, well, I'm gonna ask you the question next week. Where did you see Satan at work? So be, have him on your radar <laughs> he 's got you on his, so let me let me pray and I 'll dismiss us for worship, Lord God, we go now into worship, or maybe we 've already been to worship, and we head home. Uh, remind us that uh, we 're made in your image that we 're not accidents in the universe, that you didn 't think of us before the foundation of the world, and even though we don 't deserve it you 've unconditionally chose us. Uh, to spend eternity with you and you've proved to us in Jesus Christ that you would go to the ends of the earth literally hell and back to accomplish our salvation. Uh, Lord remind us bring us in touch with reality that uh, because we tend to think well there's got to be something I've got to do to pull off this eternal life thing. Instead, help us to remember that you've done it all. It is finished. We can't add anything to it. Um, And instead, to respond with gratitude and follow you faithfully, no matter how hard the journey is. Um, And bring us to a point in our faith where if you did tell us there's nothing on the other side, we would still follow you simply because you are who you are and you've invited us on the journey, however long it lasts. But we thank you that there is your promise of eternal life and that we have eternity to spend with you and others who you've drawn into your kingdom. For that, we're grateful. Bless our preachers this morning. Pour through them the gift of preaching and pour through us the gift of worship that we would not just go through the motions, but really uh, figuratively be on our knees praising you in song in word and prayer.